Hi, friends and colleagues. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music. My special guest today on the podcast, episode 101, is Jennifer Cooper. Now, Jennifer not only has a very busy voice studio, she also maintains an extremely active performance schedule. Our conversation is about balance. Jennifer is passionate about both teaching and performing and maintaining the highest standards in both areas. Now she is sharing how she plans her calendar, sets boundaries on her time, and takes care of herself. There's also a bonus conversation about cross-training into contemporary styles. And Jennifer has been kind enough to share some audio clips of her singing a very wide variety of music. Now, before I welcome Jennifer onto the show, a few friendly reminders. Ratings and reviews help us so much. Please take a second and leave your rating and review on iTunes, or you can visit our website, thefullvoice.com, and leave a review there. I also want to remind everybody that it's not too late. If you are listening to this podcast at time of release, our new book, Oh Christmas Tree, Seasonal Singing Activities, Vocal Warm-Ups, and Holiday Music for Intermediate Singers is now available on Amazon. We partnered with the wonderful Donna Rodenizer, and she is sharing her beautiful holiday music. And we've put together some fun activities. You can get it on Amazon and our website, and there's plenty of time to have some fun seasonal singing in your teaching studio. Now, on to our conversation. Welcome to the Full Voice Podcast, Jennifer Cooper. How are you? I am well, thank you very much. I'm grateful for the October weather. We've finally changed here in on the East Coast in Southern Maryland. So it's beautiful and I like that. It makes me feel happy. <laughs> oh, I, you know what? We've had a we've had some beautiful warm sunny days and I have to say I'm enjoying them, but I'm also dreading what's what is coming. <laughs> right. True, true. <laughs> uh, I am so excited to speak to you. You are such an in- inspiration and and for my listeners, you're going to get so much wonderful inspiration from this wonderful woman. Today, we're talking about a common challenge, which is balancing a performance schedule with our teaching studios. So the teaching artists out there, you are in for a treat. So Jennifer, thank you so much for for sharing your story. And that's where I'd like to start. I would love for everyone to kind of uh, get to know you a little bit. So give us a little bit of uh, how you got started and where you are today. (laughs) So way, way, way back. um, (laughs) I actually started and trained formally uh, as a professional opera singer. And that's how I started my career. And I was among all of the people that you now see regularly at the Met. I was training with Joyce DiDonato and with uh, Richard Bernstein and with, you know, just folks who are regularly singing principal roles now. So I was kind of in the thick of it and really, really having a great time and doing very well. Um, 
right at the crux of my journey upward, uh, I had a medical setback, which abruptly ended all of that, unfortunately. And I had to take a bit of a hiatus. And when I uh, was able to come back into performing, and I should say, during that hiatus, um, believe me, if if I could have just redirected my life and done anything else, I would have. Um, <laughs> but it seems that I, I swear, I think I was just born with the necessity to communicate through performance. I just cannot live without doing it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so w when I came to a point where I thought I might be able to try this again, the career I had established had really sort of passed by. I mean, it really doesn't take long for that to happen, right. um, especially in that genre. It's just mm -hmm. so specific and so sort of straightly tracked. And I had an agent and I had, you know, everything was so set up in a, in a certain way. And, um, I just wasn't going to be able to jump back on that train that had really left the station. Sure. So I thought, well, what, how can I get back on the performing track? How can I communicate with people the way I do it best in, in some other way. And, um, frankly, I just, I, you know, growing up, I had listened to a lot of pop popular music, if you want to call it that mm -hmm. my father, um, had a lot of old albums and 45s that were forties music, fifties music, sixties music. So I had listened to a lot of that. And so I thought, well, what if I, what if I just pick a completely different genre? I appreciated and loved all of them when I was a child. I sang a lot of musical theater when I was a kid growing up. And I, for whatever reason, I just leaned into jazz and I thought, well, here's a, here's a beautiful art form where you can, you can tell your story through other people's incredible poetry mm -hmm. and you can do it in any key that right. suits your voice. And you can choose songs that cover five note range, mm -hmm. eight note range, 10 note range, four <laughs> note range, you know? <laughs> so it was, it was a a safe door back into something that I desperately needed to survive. And I, I don't use that term lightly that mm. there were, there was some very, very dark years. Um, and, and it was essential to my survival to be able to sing again. So I started with jazz and just started dabbling with it. Me and a pianist, me and a guitarist. Um, and that eventually evolved into building a band, um, and then that band evolved into doing, well, hey, let's add on some blues. Let's add in mm -hmm. some classic rock. And then I um, uh, added in a, an amazing drummer who has this fantastic voice. He sounds like Otis Redding. Oh, and wow. so we started, yeah, we started adding in Motown, which gave me vocal breaks, you know, when we had mm. these three hour gigs. So I'd say, hey, Paul, you know, take, I need you to take a couple tunes here. And he would just lay it out with, you know, <laughs> Um, ain't two pound a bag and, you know, all these great, great tunes. So, um, and I'd sing back up on them or just, you know, hit the tambourine. So that was balancing out really well. And so, you know, all of a sudden I realized, well, now I'm, now I'm a popular genre singer, which was great and mm -hmm. fine. I was back on stage. Um, and interestingly along the way, some, in, um, some other opportunities came up, um, after I was well into that established my band Grooves Band. And we, uh, we had this little Italian restaurant, uh, in town owned by this lovely married couple. 
And they'd long been established. They had a real big following. And they had on occasion done live performances in this little this little space of theirs. And they were we were talking about how they used to do opera nights. Um, mm. and and my guitarist nudges me and looks at the owner <laughs> and says, She sang opera. And I swear to goodness to you, that conversation started the inquiry into can I, could I do it again? And from that point, we actually built um, this little series called Opera Nights and then Broadway Nights, oh, and they all fantastic. sold out. Yeah. And so the, it was interesting, the people, because I moved back to Maryland um, at a time when I was just starting back into the, the jazz genre. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people in my local area back in Maryland had never seen or heard me perform opera. Oh, so wow. they were only seeing me do groove span stuff. So <laughs> when they came to see these opera programs, they were like, what is happening right, right? now? You know, it was, and it was fun for me. Cause I was like, well, this is what I was actually trained to do for years wow. and years, you know? So it was really, really fun to introduce that to fans who had only seen me sing jazz, blues and pop. Um, they sold out, they did great. Um, and I sort of personally kind of proved to myself that I was actually able to sing that genre again. Um, and amid all of this, um, a few people had started asking about, Hey, do you teach? And I was like, yeah, I have taught in the past. I, I had taught at universities uh, for brief periods of time. I had taught as a TA when I was in grad school. So I had had students, um, off and on throughout my career and more people started asking. And the more I started training people in the community who were going on to do really great things, word of mouth just started flowing. And the next thing I knew, I had built a studio that I really didn't intend to do. Honestly, right. that was not my goal. Right. And now the studio is completely full with a massive wait list. And, and I'm teaching at the local college and still running Groovespan. And it all just sort of exploded. And so that's why I'm at this point of like balance. Like, how do I how do I balance all of this? So, yeah, that's how we got here. <laughs> I love that story that I I. Thank you for sharing that. The, your passion for performing is is shared by so many of our members of our of our group and and uh, our colleagues and our friends. And I I love that your journey has brought you into two different, very different genres. Was it was it difficult to transition from the classical? singing into the more contemporary singing? That's a big topic right now in our sure. industry. Um, so the, I, I think of that question or the answer to that question on two tracks. So if you're speaking, you know, specifically vocally, um, you know, I, I would not say it was difficult, not for me. I think because I, I always had a really good Ear. Mm -hmm. I absorbed stylistic aspects of music all my life. So switching styles for me was not all that difficult. And I think that's because I was highly auditory in that mm -hmm. respect. I will say that, sure, there were things I had to adjust. Like, obviously, I had to you know, um, use less vibrato. And mm. I had to obviously learn to work with a microphone that was, you know, <laughs> but I, but I did it all on my own because this transition for me was happening around, um, probably around 2008. Mm. Well, no, I'd say 
it really, uh, the very beginnings of it probably was more around 2005, six. And then I really, I started establishing Groovespan around 2008, nine, 10. Mm -hmm. And I was doing it on my own. I wasn't working with a teacher at this point. Um, so I was using just my own instincts Mm -hmm. and what I knew sounded appropriate to switch over to the style. Um, what's, the other track to that answer is what was actually more challenging for me was that I had come from a world in both opera and music theater where I was telling a story through a character based, you know, inside a larger story mm-hmm. with a huge cast with enormous sets and beautiful costumes and a team of tech people running all the, you know, running all of the, every, it was a really big world into which I was inserting myself. The, the new genre was just me Mm. with an audience a few feet away and nothing else between us, no costumes, no sets, no orchestra, no maestro, you know, it, that was the challenge for me was being vulnerable and open enough to express myself personally on such an intimate level after training my whole life to do it from behind footlights at a pretty obvious distance from the audience. There, that was the challenge for me. Wow. Um, yeah. And I'm, you know, it was, it was exciting and interesting and intellectual for me to dig into characters it was challenging to open up who i was Mm. to an audience of people i didn't know it's a very very different thing to do very vulnerable for sure yeah there's not another human in view but we too Thank you for sharing that. That's so, so true. Um, and kudos to you for taking that step. That That is so uh, terrifying, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. And, and honestly, you know, it was pure desperation to just, to just, um, I am more comfortable on stage performing than I am in a room full of people where I'm supposed to be interacting socially. Ah. That scares me a lot. You know, having to go to having to go to parties and be social and all. I'm really good one on one. I'm good with people that I know and I'm comfortable with. I am terrified in a social situation where there are a lot of people in the room. I maybe it's the Scorpio in me. I don't know. But that that makes me feel really uncomfortable. But I'm really comfortable expressing myself on stage through music that that that's my conduit, you know. And that's Um, what that's what makes you an incredible performer. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, 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 going back to the vocal side of it, switching over, um, using the mic was, was really interesting, but I just, mm. I didn't see it as difficult. I just saw it as interesting. I saw it as, this is fascinating. Look what I can do with this, 
with this sort of filtered instrument that's going to slightly adjust my sound. I had to learn, you know, um, what levels of high, mi mid and low were right for my voice, you know, mm -hmm. when adjusting the, the, the amplifier, whatever that we were using in gear. I, but I also discovered, um, even more dynamics that I had to work on in my voice, oh. because obviously with, you know, with music theater and opera, you're, you're kind of on, you know, mezzo forte and above for yes, most of that, yes. you know, you're, you're careening over an orchestra of mm -hmm. 60 or more. And in this case, um, much of what you're expressing is at a much quieter level. And so it actually, it started rehoning my voice in a way that I didn't anticipate being able to sing, for instance, um, you know, to sort of, if I want a color that stayed in my so-called chest register voice, but I wanted to sing softly and, and move up the scale a little bit, like how far could I go and maintain that color and that registration in that dynamic on that vowel? These were very different questions and, and, um, uh, sort of puzzles to solve that were not presented to me in opera. Oh, and so brilliant. that, that was exciting for me and, and, um, and a whole other way to find a way to express myself. And I just appreciated it rather than saw it as a challenge. I just thought th this is amazing. Yeah. I wish all of my students had that attitude when when navigating <laughs> the human voice. I love your sense of adventure. I love that you ask, this is cool. What can I do? Rather than, I don't like this. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I love what you said about the microphones, too. I, I find that uh, I love allowing my students to use the microphones and explore. And the conversation that we often have is let's explore the softer sounds because you get to hear them and the audience gets to hear them in a way that you can't acoustically. And it's a it's a beautiful place to hang out in for a while. It's and yes. it, you're right. I love what you said about the it expands your dynamic range as well. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's there's a there's a level of control that that I've discovered that I may not have discovered if I had stayed on the operatic track. Now, that's not to say that, you know, that it's I will fully admit right here, you know, when I go to the to the HD live streams at the Met, you know, half of those casts are people I worked with. And right. It's it's heart wrenching sometimes to sit and watch that and to see my colleagues up there. Um, but, you know, I, I try to just, you know, go home and be grateful for what I'm doing in the present and hope that I am changing lives of people I may not have ever met otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a give and take. But I'm not going to lie and say, hey, I'm fine with it. No, it, it hurts. <laughs> it's it's hard. It is of very course, hard at times. Of course. You know, it was a whole other track. It's kind of like sliding doors. There's you know, I'm not going to say that sometimes I don't wonder where I would have been right now had that not happened, but it is what it is and you, you do what you can. So, yeah. well, I, I am humbled by that, that honesty. Thank you for sharing all sure. of that. Cause I know that that is certainly something that many of my listeners have dealt with, whether it was choosing teaching over performing or having to, you know, make those hard decisions for whether the reasons were in our control or not. But thank you for that. Now, sure. I want to dive in 
to how do you manage all of this and a full teaching studio? So I, I have a couple of specific questions first. Uh, so first of all, how do you communicate to your students that you're a teaching artist? How do you, do you have that conversation in the beginning or how do you do that? Um, you know, if it's a new student, um, I, I don't, I don't focus a lot on me being a performer. I first focus on what they need from me, mm-hmm. what their goals are. And then if it's helpful for them to know that I'm still in the game, mm-hmm. you know, then I, then I bring that into the conversation. Um, I, it also becomes really useful when a student, for instance, um, I have a couple of students who, uh, one in particular who's been training with me for almost seven years now. She's she just turned, I think, seventeen years old, and um, as she has grown, she's also a crossover. She mm. can sing incredible, you know, operatic arias. Um, she's working on Juve Viva right now, and she's oh. just knocking it out of the park while singing things like Astonishing, you know, oh, from Little Women. So, and she can belt, and it, it's amazing. She's she's wonderful, but she's been training really, really hard under me. And, um, as she starts, she's getting more and more gigs. I'll take the example of the national anthem. Okay. So when she was younger, she started singing them at say like swim meets at local, you know, swim meets and things. Right. Um, because she was on the team and they were like, Hey, you sing. So I started (laughs) training her on how to sing the anthem really well, because I sing it a lot around and elsewhere. And, um, so she was singing it at swim meets and then she started singing it like at the, the town square for special events. And then she started singing it at like military events. We have a couple of bases nearby Mm -hmm. now this coming weekend, she's singing it at Georgetown university's football game. Oh wow! So her stakes keep going up. And so that when, when she starts, when she says to me, like, you know, okay, I'm a little, you know, I know what I need to do and I know how to do it. And she's like, but I'm a little concerned about what will happen when I walk out on, you know, that field, you know, and that's when I start talking about my own experiences and say, okay, Mm. let's talk about how, what, what happens to our body when the stakes keep rising? You know, I said, remember how you felt at the first swim meet when you had to sing it? Yeah. You know, so we talk about the evolution of the stakes and I, I give her references in my world. Like, you know, there was a time when it was my first time on an operatic stage in a principal role. And then that got easier. And we, you know, I even, we talked about like the physiology of that and the psychosis of that and, and the, or the psychology of that, that, you know, I said, look, I said, when you walk out in the middle of that stadium, it's very likely your heart's going to be palpitating more than you would prefer. And you (laughs) might be a little short of breath. And I said, and that's normal. And I said, I bet it doesn't do that anymore when you're at the town square. Right. She's like, no, I'm fine there now. And I said, yeah, well, but this is important. And I said, so this week when you're at home practicing, you know, I said, go ahead and go outside and run around your house twice, come back in and start the anthem. And I said, just make sure you can start it with your heart racing a little bit, because we can almost guarantee that will be the case. And she was like, oh yeah, I can do that. And I said, and I said, not only will that physically teach your body how to go ahead and sing through that, because it'll settle down. I said, once you get into the song, it'll settle down. I said, but number two is that psychologically, you'll be, your brain will able, be able to say to you in the moment when you're nervous and you're out in the middle of the stadium, hey, I know how to sing with my heart beating out of my chest because I practiced it that way. Mm. And once you can prove to your body you've done that, 
you'll be fine. You will know you can handle that by having practiced it that way. So there's all kinds of things that, that parallel what some of my more advanced students are going through that I can give samples of and say, you know, this was my experience and I think this may help you. And so that's mostly where I bring the performing aspect in. The Mm -hmm. funny thing is it's actually hard to get them to come to my gigs. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. I advertise them on my studio page and all that. They don't come. And I'm like, and it's so funny because they're like, you know, some of them will say they've been doing say musical theater and now they realize that they, you know, many of them need to cross over into pop for college auditions because some require that. And they'll be like, you know, so, you know, do you think we could start looking at some pop? And it's almost (laughs) like, it's like, can we, can we, can we even open that door? And I'm like, you do realize that your teacher is like a rock singer, right? I'm like, that I actually do this for a living. You know, I'm like, you're, you're asking me like, like, that's a big, scary thing. And right? I'm like, I have a band. I'm like, <laughs> do you ever, did you ever have that when they actually do show up to your performances, they actually will go, wow, you're, you're really good. Like question mark. Like they were surprised right? yes. that I think, that is I, like, yeah, because it's so different from what they see in the studio right? because I'm also sort of obsessive about pedagogy and about vocal anatomy. Mm. And so I really get into technique. And so they, you know, 99% of the time they're, they're watching and hearing me use language that is, you know, built around science and around and artistry and the Mm -hmm. combination of them. But they rarely see me up on stage with the band, like, you know, shaking my tail and like belting out <laughs> Janis Joplin. Sure. And so, yes, when they actually see it, they are a little sur- surprised because that's not the person they see in the studio because that's not appropriate for me to be doing in the studio if I don't, you know, if it's not set up that way. Um, um, unless I need to give them a sample, in which case, you know, I'll, I'll like get up off the, you know, the ball that I sit, the, te- the, you know, the yoga ball I sit on and I'll say, you know, hey, when you do this piece, you know, we need a little bit more of this. And I'll do a little <laughs> moment of that and they'll be like, whoa. And I'm like, well, yeah, if you came to a gig, you'd see a three hours of that, you right? know? I remember the first time that one of my students found, I guess it was a YouTube video of a performance I had done and she was, she was in shock. And I was, I have full disclosure. I was a little annoyed. I'm like, you know, uh, you've been coming here for a while. And, you know, now that you know that I know what I'm talking about, (laughs) let's get to work, shall we? Well, I think sadly, you know, I think there's, I don't know what it is, but there's, there's a lack of curiosity. I mean, when oh, I was yeah. studying, when I was studying, I wanted to know what my teachers had done. I, and we didn't have YouTube when I was mm-hmm. studying, you know, at the age of 20, I, I had to find other ways. I had to go into, you know, archives and find cassettes of, t- of my teacher's recordings. Yeah. And I wanted to hear them. And I spent the time doing that. I wanted to know what they had done in the past. But I think our students are so distracted, as we know, by mm-hmm. social media and what's going on with their friends and what's going on. They're not curious. And I'm like, you you have total access. I've I've recorded a CD. I have YouTube clips. I have of everything from me singing Richard Strauss to <laughs> um, to the Almond Brothers. You know, right. I'm like. 
So it's at your fingertips, but you have to be curious. Yeah. I'm not going to say, go watch me. I mean, that's crazy. Like you need, you need to be interested. You know, it's true. So- it's true. You, you bring up a really good point. I, I think many teachers struggle with just students finding repertoire for themselves. They're yes. in a, they they can stream any piece of music in the whole world free of charge at their convenience and yet do they bring in song selections? Do they do they come in excited about a piece of music that they've discovered? Like I really struggle with that. And I and I truly believe that a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're on content overload. But yes. it is one of the challenges is just find find a piece of music to sing absolutely it's it's one of the things that has started sort of bogging me down the most is that Mm -hmm. because I tend to um I I I hold recital recitals and master classes um so usually there's a recital in December and a recital in May and there are two master classes prior to each recital to get them acquainted with their pianists Mm. and so basically roughly around January and like June, July is when I am restarting the whole repertoire search. And I have, I have roughly anywhere from 18 to 24 students given, give or take per week. And if each of them is doing three to four pieces, I'm like, do you all realize how many hundreds and hundreds of hours it takes me to, you know, find these things. So as the, as the teens get more advanced, when they get to like their sophomore, junior year, I start saying, look, this is on you now. Nice. I'm turning this over to you. You've watched how I, you know, spin out these emails. Cause I, I send really specific emails that go to the student and the pianist mm. and it says song selection four, and then it has the song title, the, uh, the, the show from which it comes, the composers. Sometimes I'll put in a link uh, to the synopsis of the show and then I'll put materials, sheet music attached, piano accompaniment attached, two or three samples of good, of good performers oh, wow. singing this. I put all that into an email and it goes to the pianist and the singer. And I've started saying, you know, to the older ones, you need to start doing this now. Mm-hmm. You need, you need to follow my lead and start doing this now because you're old enough. You know what your range is, you know what your niche is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and if you think you're going to go off to college and if you think that that professor is going to pick every single song you sing, you got another thing coming. You, right. you need to go in, you know, um, with some autonomy with that. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better at trying to relinquish that control and, mm. and encourage them to do it. Cause yeah, <laughs> they a, need to. It's a <clears throat> fine line because I know that if, if we put our hands up and say it's on you a lot of times it won't happen and then you have these unproductive lessons where you're just trying to figure stuff out it is definitely a frustrating chore and oh my gosh you do a lot I I, if I become your student will you send me emails like that because that would make my (laughs) life so much easier Jennifer Nikki you're going to sing this this and this I'd be like okay I will do that. (laughs) You know what the beautiful thing is that once in a while, like I'll usually try to give it a two or three year span, but like once in a while, you know, one of those kids will long graduate and a new one will come in and say, I'd really love to do this song. And it's like perfect for them. That whole email is ready to go. And I literally just change the name. Okay. (laughs) Send it out and go. You're saving them. That's that's a great, great idea. 
Yeah, believe me, I went ahead and and um, bought the the Google Space or whatever mm. so that I could have 10 million emails saved. Nice. And I never throw away those emails because I know I'm going to need them again. Or even if a pianist, you know, just says, "Hey, you know, I know I know this one singer had a song that you sent me like 6 months ago wow. and I can't find it in my archives." I can find it in two seconds and send it out. Oh, so, so. It does help, but <laughs> okay. The teachers listening, there is a brilliant teacher tip for you. Like use those archive your emails because yes. all those that's just so much research right there. Yeah. And now for the My Music Staff Minute. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Erin here with your My Music Staff Minute. When was the last time you stopped and acknowledged an important accomplishment? When was the last time you celebrated a studio milestone? As an entrepreneur, you're always planning and thinking about what comes next. When you reach a goal, it's easy to simply cross it off your list and move on to the next, rather than set aside some time to reflect upon and celebrate your achievement. As a studio owner or music teacher, it's important to recognize how far you've come. Celebrating a success or milestone isn't just an ego boost. It's an opportunity to develop your skills as a business owner by offering a chance to review your goals and what you've learned along the way. It's also important because it helps to validate your business decisions and remind you that you're on the right path, even if there are some barriers. Make sure to celebrate with those who have helped you achieve your success. Admins, teachers, students, and your family all play a role in the success of your business. You don't need to throw a big party, unless you want to, but do take a moment to acknowledge everyone's contributions. This will strengthen your relationship with them and remind them why they're a part of your music studio. Successful people attract successful people. Sharing your successes may lead to opportunities with like-minded individuals in your community. Who knows what new ideas and opportunities may come up. Humility can go a long way in some situations, but it's a disservice to yourself if you don't acknowledge your achievements. You're doing a great job, and it's worth taking a moment to be proud of yourself and enjoy it. Start your 30-day free trial of My Music Staff today at mymusicstaff.com. And stay tuned for next week's tips and tricks on the My Music Staff Minute, exclusively on the Full Voice Podcast. Great tip. Now, I would like to know how much does your performance schedule impact your teaching studio? Do you ever run into having to cancel lessons? And how do you handle that? Right. I mean, most of the time I'm able to schedule my gigging around my teaching and I'm pretty strategic about it. However, yes, we we will on occasion get a request um, from a client and their date is non-negotiable. It's on Mm. a, it's a special event or it's, you know, and sometimes I will need to cancel. And I do, if I'm canceling as the teacher, I always offer a reschedule. Um, and many of the students do take me up on that. And we just, we work that out. Um, but most of the time I'm in control of, of the date selection for gigging. Um, and yeah. And so what I do is I actually compress all of my teaching onto Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. So I teach about eight hours on Mondays in my own studio on Tuesdays. I teach four hours at the college and three or four hours at home on Wednesdays, another six or seven hours in my studio. Thursdays are administrative days, recovery days. And so it, it, I, I do all of my admin. It could be marketing, promo, social media, websites, finance, all of that while I'm quiet because I've been teaching for 22 some hours in three Mm. days. Right. 
So I get vocal rest while cranking out all of that work. Um, Brilliant. Then on, yeah, then typically on Friday and or Saturday and or Sunday is when I'm gigging with the band. There are some months where we have a gig almost every weekend. There are some months where there's only a, a gig, you know, on one weekend of the month, mm-hmm. in which case I just fill the rest of the time with more admin catching up. Um, and I'm also cautious about, um, um, what kind of gigs get placed back to back. For instance, if we have a full band gig where we're going to be doing, you know, say that client wants mostly, blues rock Motown. And so I'm going to be belting for like three hours. Mm -hmm. Then I typically will not, uh, if that's going to be a Saturday night and we're going to be loading in at four and loading out at 11 PM, (laughs) I will not put like a, an intimate duo jazz gig the next day at noon because I need recovery from that. I just need I need physical recovery. I'm not 20 years old anymore. (laughs) And I need, um, and, and even just, I like to be extra cautious with my voice. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll strategically plan even what kinds of gigs go in front of and behind each other for my voice and for my physical health. Mm. Um, and, um, trying to think of other, um, uh, if, if I know that I have a weekend coming up where we're gigging Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, I'm a little bit more, conscientious about how much I am speaking and demonstrating in the lessons that week. Mm. I will, um, for instance, I just may have all of those students sing their repertoire a lot more instead of me doing a lot of lecture type teaching. Yeah. So that I'm mostly listening and commenting and listening more and commenting a little bit. And that's giving me a little bit of save, like a precautionary save of my voice, knowing that I'm going to be gigging for, you know, 12 hours that weekend or something. So, um, because, and gigging, you know, here's the other thing too. It's not just the three hours of, of performing, but I don't, I don't have, um, a tech crew. So my band and I, we load in all of our own gear. We load out all of our own gear. So a three hour performance usually means a seven or eight hour commitment of physical labor, you know, long before I get on the stage, you know, so, um, so I'm factoring that in too. I'm just really overly cautious and preparatory. I look way ahead at what's going to be healthy for me, um, Mm. so that I can still serve my students and also serve my need to communicate through performance and, and give a really high level professional performance. My, my musicians are all, um, long standing professionals. So we bring a really high quality, um, Mm -hmm. to our, our gigs and we want to keep it that way. So, um, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, uh, diligent about how I, how I plan out my week and my month and my year and things like that. So, yeah. I appreciate how you have, one, not only set boundaries for your health, but how you're also modeling that for your students. Yeah, as best I can. Yes. (laughs) I think that is so wonderful to hear this because often, I mean, it goes back to a theme that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is that scarcity mindset and we take everything and every opportunity that comes our way only to find ourselves physically and mentally burnt out and not able to help anyone, including ourselves. Like you have 
really thought this through and I, I admire that and I, I wish more teachers would model that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, believe me, it's been a trial and error kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, probably early on, you know, there were times when, when I wasn't as wise and, and I really did, I ran into some, you know, vocal fatigue things because I had taught a whole week, too much talking and then three big gigs. And I thought, Oh, that was not the smartest thing to do. And so there's been some trial and error and I'm just better at it now based on time and experience. Mm Um, and and I will say too that you know, um, GrooveSpan is a well-oiled machine, and mm. so we, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, oh, how often do you guys rehearse? Well, honestly, the only time we rehearse is when we're adding new repertoire. Sure. Otherwise, we this band is so congealed that we can go two months or so without rehearsal and show up to a gig and nail it. It's mm. that's that's kind of the level of guys that I'm working with, um, and, and girls too. I have a, now I have a female bass player, so I have to remember <laughs> um, we, some, most, mostly it's been guys, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes I have a, a female uh, bass player. So, um, so that also brings a sense of sort of, um, confidence and security going into those gigs, mm-hmm. especially when, you know, if I've had a, a week where, um, several students have had high-end auditions that I have need to help them prepare for, or we've got a big masterclass coming up, or they've got a special performance coming up. And so I've had to put a lot of my, um, preparation and intellect, you know, prep, uh, uh, thought into them. Sometimes that means I have to push aside any prep for groove span. And, and in most cases, I know that's okay because I can show up and I trust them everything's going to be fine. We know all this music. We know exactly what we need to do. Um, if, if I have a gig coming up, that's more on the classical side, then I, again, I account for that. And I will really, um, lay out large chunks of time of vocal rest or practice time for me. Anything that I know is going to tax my, brain or my voice more than it normally would. I prepare for that. And not just, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, oh, oh no, tomorrow is the thing. No, no, no. I look a week or two ahead and say, ah, okay. On, you know, two weeks from now on Friday, I have that particular gig. So right now I need to start thinking about how I use my voice over the next two weeks, um, how I'm going to run lessons. I, I go that far back in order to be to be respectful of my instrument. And it just, it all, it just all goes back to knowing who I am and knowing, knowing how much I need my voice to survive as an artist, as a teacher, as a communicator, Mm -hmm. it's who I am. And, and I, I 
treat it like gold because of that. So, yeah. So everything, it's the axis around everything, which everything flows. Uh, as, all just... as it <laughs> should be. As it should be. I My heart always feels a little, I get, my heart feels heavy when I see very talented people who have worn themselves out and who are starting to suffer from burnout. Teacher burnout, you know, is such a huge thing in our industry. And I'm, I'm finding, I'm, I'm gleaning so much inspiration from hearing you tell all of how you've prioritized this. And I hope that my listeners are, are taking good notes. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you find it difficult to switch gears? Like, do you find it difficult to go from like performance Jennifer to teaching Jennifer? Is it, is it challenging? Um, no, honestly, I, I, I seem to switch pretty easily. And maybe that's because I enjoy them both so much. Oh, nice. I mean, I just, when I know we're going into a gig, I'm excited about the fact that I get to share and release who I am personally, Mm -hmm. um, on a really visceral level. And when the teaching week starts, I get excited because I know what the students goals are and I'm excited to facilitate that. Um, and I, and I, I have ideas and, 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 you know, things I want to try. And, you know, so I, so I get just as excited about, propelling them as I do about then getting to sort of propel me, you know? And so it, it really does just go back and forth and back and forth in, in a way that serves me and them. Um, you know, and I, uh, you know, going back to the schedule thing, um, this is not to say that I haven't made mistakes there too. I, there was a year where, um, I had just, I had taken on too many things. I was trying to, I had accepted a, a directing position with a local um, choral and orchestra um, program for youth. I had taken on just way too many things. And I realized I had gone something like three and a half months with no day off. <gasps> and and yeah, and that that was where I experienced some burnout. And And I know when it's coming on because I get, like if a student comes in a little less prepared than I would like them to be, I can feel my resentment sort of boiling up oh. and I, and I get, there's an impatience in my voice that when it comes out, even I don't like it. I'm like, Oh gosh, I didn't like, I didn't, I, I didn't want that tone to come out of me. Right. And that tone comes out of me when I've gone beyond my wall, when I've hit the wall and gone beyond it. And so I learned from that. I learned from that year. And so I thought, oh, I just realized that I have, I, my time has become in so demand that I actually have to schedule time off. Mm-hmm. And I ha- it hadn't occurred to me until then. And so now I do that. Now I'm like, okay, I always take a week off in May. This year I'm taking two weeks off at the end of December, which is unheard of for me. Wow. Um, but but I I realized that's part of my mental health. I I don't ever want to get to that point where I resent a student for not preparing. Um, because are they supposed to prepare? Of course they are. But maybe they had an awful day. Maybe something happened in their exactly. life that precluded them preparing. And who am I to jump all over them? Now, I've had some rare instances where 
there's been a cumulative situation where a student with a student where the expectations are not met, then I do sort of lay into them for lack of a better word. <laughs> and, but but that's that's an instance where they needed it. it they needed it. They needed mm-hmm. to hear that, and it and it was appropriate at the time. But I don't I don't like for that to boil up in me when I don't think it's entirely warranted. And I've started recognizing that. And again, I'm like, okay, yeah, I need to schedule time off so that I don't get to that point. Yeah. So such great information. And yes, I think, uh, teaching, um, and, and having that, that intimate relationship with our students requires us to be well-rested and in a good frame of mind. And, yes. um, and that doesn't happen by chance. So thank you. For, <laughs> <laughs> at least it doesn't for me. I know that, uh, I mean, I, I was doing that as well. And I, many years ago, and I was trying to balance the performance. I think what I've taken from your conversation there is you're so organized and you're always looking ahead. So nothing comes up and surprises you. I, I full that's, disclosure. That's the, that's the intent. <laughs> full full disclosure. Things come up and surprise me all the time. I think I need to. I think I need to improve my my far distance and and look further ahead in my schedule. I love it. <laughs> well, and it's funny. I mean, it, it, people who know me who've known me a long time and really well know that there is a there is an aspect to me that is extremely detail oriented and to the point of needing a, a fair amount of control. And I've also had to learn that when surprises come up, I've had to learn how to deal with that too, to not panic or go sure. off the rails, but to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And um and I've gotten better at that. You know, my my panic meter used to go off more frequently and, and it would last longer to the point that I couldn't get down to the business of solving the problem. And I've gotten better at, you know, sort of allowing the panic moment to happen and then going, okay, I'm done with that. How do I fix it? Um, that's something I've had to learn because it's hard for me to, you know, my mind says, but I prepared for this and I, I thought of every single plan and every single caveat and every single out that could that could have gone wrong and still something will come in there and you know wiggle things apart and that's when that's when my brain is like how can this be you know and (laughs) (laughs) and fortunately I have good friends and good colleagues who can either talk me off that ledge or I've just simply gotten better at settling down and thinking through it and solving the problem so yeah, but that's come with time. <laughs> I I agree. I think that is definitely a learned skill, a mindfulness uh, skill for sure. I I, I think uh, I think what's the term? You're now taking it seriously and not personally. Yeah, and Brilliant. that's 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 tricky. Yeah, it is that, tricky. And it's, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now, before I let you go, you cannot leave until we do. Warm-up of the week. And now, the warm-up of the week. All right. And uh, so I want you to preface, you you sent me this in advance, but in, I'm very excited to hear this. But please <laughs> s- set this set this warm-up up, because I think this is very, very useful for, for our listeners. Okay. 
So, um, so oftentimes we're working with registration. Um, and for instance, you know, if I'm working with a teen who is either going to do Nats and wants to do, say, both categories, classical and music theater, or I'm working with a teen who's been doing mostly music theater that's been sort of the the sort of belt your face off kind of thing. And, but then now they want to do something that's got a little bit of a ballad pop or gospel feel to it. And so I need them to be able to get in and out of blend and chess voice in an area in the voice. And right now I'm going to kind of lean toward female voice. It's just a little sure. easier for this moment. Of course. Um, right over that lower break. So mm -hmm. most females, you know, are kind of negotiating around, the break anywhere between, say, um, uh, if we're going up for middle C, uh, the E natural, E flat, F, F sharp, G, G flat, you know, or G sharp, right around in there is where most females have a little something, something going mm -hmm. on. They have to make a decision. You know, I call about it, where I gonna... call it the ka-chunk. The ka-chunk. Yes, I call it that too. The ka-chunk. I've called it, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the gear shift or the, you know, sometimes. Popping you know, the although... clutch. Yes, exactly. And it's so funny. I'll start talking about the clutch thing. And then I'm like, Oh, gosh, you don't drive. They yet, don't do know you? I'm so sorry. Talking, I you know, know. <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm an idiot. You don't even drive yet. So. <laughs> so, um, so there's something that I'll do with um, some of them, depending on their level of advancement with negotiating these these registers. And um, so I'll do it just a portion of it. So the first little bit I'll do is I will have them do um, an open fifth, either either a slide from five to one or a scale. And I'll make them do it in head voice slash blend from top to bottom. And they have to stay in the blend and they have to either maintain the dynamic they started with or increase it. So mm. something like, um, so it would be something like, So I'm still in blend, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea of maintaining or increasing the dynamic is to thicken that up a little bit. So you're sort of welcoming in a little bit of TA, but but you're still dominated by head voice, right? I'm then, stealing that. Welcoming okay. in. I love welcoming that in. language. <laughs> Welcome right? in. Right. And you, like I said, you can do slides or steps. It depends on where that student is. Then, so I took us to, I took us to the middle C just then. Mm -hmm. Then what I will do is say, okay, and obviously I would start higher and bring them down into this area. You always start where they're successful and then you bring them down to the challenging areas. Then I would start them a little lower lower than this, but then I get them to, you know, where we're starting on like a C, a middle C in chest voice, but now they're going to slide or walk up and decrescendo oh. in chest voice. So something like, or I'll start on like a B flat first. So it would be, um, uh, like a E, 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 I'm still in chest voice, but yeah. it's very thin, right? Yeah. And then, so once we do a bunch of that kind of back and forth, mm -hmm. now we do the numbers game. So this is a three-step mm -hmm. thing. So the third step is the numbers game where we actually take a five-note scale and I'll say, let's do three, two. And they know what this means now. So it means if we're going to do C, D, E, F, G, F, E, D, C, so up and down the five-note scale, three means three in chest voice, four and five are blend, oh, and then back nice. to full blend. So they have to go um, like... Wow, I love that. 
Yeah. And I'm using, and we'll do this all over the map until they sort of so-called fail. And then it, wherever they fail, we'll, we'll work a little bit more. I'll say, add or subtract this, that percentage to see if they can solve the failure. And we'll get to a point where it's not doable. But the goal, of course, is to smooth over that break so that's almost imperceptible by the audience ear. And oh. I always explain, I always say, look, you're always going to feel something. Don't think that this is just going to like magically go. You're always going to feel the shift, but your audience will not always hear it. And that's what we're doing here. And also notice that I started with the vowel E for this. Yes. E vowel is easier to yes. start with. We've got <gasps> oh. an advanced student who, you know, who can, who's been doing this a while, then I'll put them on ah or on eh, the open eh, the dreaded eh, right? <laughs> um, so I'll put them on vowels that are a little harder so that, and what'll happen is, you know, sometimes, um, they'll get like, if I go to ah, and maybe if I, if, if they do, ah, and I'll say, okay, let's work on that. So if that, if that F natural is getting breathy, we go back to and then so we work really 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 deconstructively um to, to pinpoint all of that and eventually they get it. They're like, Oh, I'm like, yeah. And some of them have gotten so good at it that I, I almost can't tell when they've switched, <gasps> you know, that's why we do the game. Yeah. Or I'll go, Did you change there. <laughs> yeah. That is the ultimate goal. If you can fool the teacher, well yes. done. That is and the, love it. when you can take the stone. Oh yeah. Their eyes light up. <laughs> I'm like, you tricked me. I couldn't tell if you did it or not. They're like, yes, you know. Ah, so, and obviously, brilliant. you know, you want to do this first. You want to start with a vowel that's going to be successful. You want to start in a range area that's successful. Mm -hmm. And then you challenge them. Then you go, okay, let's stay with the E, but let's go up in the range a little bit. Because obviously, the higher you go, if I say, if we start on the E flat and I say we're going to do four to one, mm. you know, that fourth note in chess voice is going to, they're going to start getting louder. Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You got to, you got to stay in chess voice and thin it down. And that might mean a little change in placement, a little change in how tall or wide the vowel is. Mm -hmm. You know, they start learning. There are other variables that can help them achieve this. So it's, it's, seems so micro, but oh my gosh, it becomes so applicable when they open up a song where they want to, you know, even just a simple dynamic change on a sustain, they start learning how to like start on a big belt, you know, sustain on say a G sharp and then decrescendo it into blend without anybody hearing the switch. Oh. That stuff is golden. And right. that's what gets you the audition versus somebody who couldn't do that. Yeah. You know, and so I, I get into the real nitty gritty with that so that they are competitive and marketable out in a world where 2000 people want the one spot they want in that college program, you know, or wherever they're going for. And you're, and you're helping students with that just making peace with their voice, you know, letting yeah. them know that, yeah, these, I have options to change this sound and, oh, yes. Jennifer, that was, <laughs> that wasn't gold. That was a platinum 
platinum <laughs> exercise. I'm stealing it. I'm going to use it in my studio. I have, I'm actually teaching a few students this afternoon. Guess what we're going to be doing? I'm going to, I'm going to tag you. Have oh. fun with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jennifer Cooper, you are amazing. And I appreciate your time and your talent and your passion is just so wonderful to my listeners. I hope that you can take some of Jennifer's wonderful advice to heart and uh, set those boundaries and yet do what you love and serve the serve your people like you like you can. Oh, I have goosebumps. Thank you. Thank you. That I'm I got goosebumps when you were doing your vocal warm up. I'm like, "Oh, this is genius." Oh, so wonderful. Uh Jennifer, thank you. It has been just a fun conversation with you and we will have you back for sure. If anything, just to glean more vocal warm ups off of you. Brilliant. <laughs> I now officially, full disclosure, I now officially want to become one of Jennifer's students. So one, I can get the repertoire email recommendations and also more exercises like that. There you go. (laughs) I'd be happy to come back. This is fun for me. So anytime. A very special thank you to Jennifer for that wonderful conversation. If you would like more information, please check the show notes. This is podcast episode 101. Now, before I go, uh, next week on the podcast, episode 102, I'm diving into that forever teacher challenge practicing. We're going to talk about strategies, why your students may not be practicing, and what you can do about it. It's going to be a fun episode, and I hope that you will check it out. As always, I am wishing you inspired teaching and happy singing. May my canoe music. Canoe music.ca.